Would you please stand with me as we read? We're reading from Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. We're just on week two into our new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in order to make sure that we're on the same page and have some of the same ideas floating around in our head. Remember that Ephesians is probably written towards the later part of Paul's life. Paul's in prison. So when he talks about victory in Christ or liberty, uh, you have to realize that he's writing those words and thinking those thoughts while he's in chains. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, which is suffering increased persecution as Christianity becomes more prominent. The Roman Empire will act more decisively against it. And Paul is concerned that some of those believers will potentially walk away. And so he writes this letter of pastoral care and compassion to those who are in Ephesus. And he begins in almost an explosion of praise and thanksgiving for what God has done in Christ and what that means for the people. And in one long sense from verses 3 to 14, which we've broken up over two weeks, uh, this is what's going on. This... um, This way of of calling the people to rethink what has happened in Christ and to reconsider their situation and to dwell uh, more deeply on it. And as he rounds out this opening introduction, he focuses on the notion of inheritance. Inheritance is really our theme today, and uh, perhaps you have received an inheritance. Perhaps you're looking forward to an inheritance We noted earlier in the year that the lottery had gotten to an unprecedented number. The uh, Powerball had gone over $1 billion, right? What would you do if that was your inheritance? If you suddenly won $1 billion, right, you have to give something like a third of it to the government. So you walk away with something like $750 million. What are the first three things you're going to do? I seriously want you to think about it and kind of come up with a notion, Right? Tomorrow, you have the winning ticket. It's a done deal. $750 million. What are you going to do? As Paul impacts inheritance for us, and we consider what we do with our inheritance in Christ from God, we're going to consider it from three different facets. First will be the nature of inheritance. Second will be the significance of inheritance. Third will be living our inheritance. Nature, significance, and living. So first, what is the nature of this inheritance? In verse 11, Paul writes, We have obtained an inheritance, all well and good. But what is its nature? 
Well, he goes on to write that it's to those predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, this inheritance is assigned to those who are predestined according to the will of God. Those appointed, those chosen, right? Paul said last week, just earlier in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, these are those who receive the inheritance. We also said that that doctrine, which we refer to as the doctrine of election or predestination, it can bring great comfort, it can be very challenging, and something that should be considered carefully right? for a number of reasons. The first thing that we have to note, when we start talking about God choosing some, we get very uncomfortable. So we don't like this notion that some are select and some may not be. But we do have to start from the position of reminding ourselves that God didn't need to choose any. There's no reason, there's no impetus in God that he should create something that rebels against him and then he should redeem it. And if us being the creator, I think would be more prone to hand it over to destruction and start over. But in God's grace, he enters into it. And sometimes I think we think about it quite backwards, but imagine a situation in which, you know, the three people who murdered your family and were sentenced to death were caught in a building burning and you ran in and saved two of them but didn't get all three, even though you could have. Do the papers the next day read, you know, man who could have saved three only saved two? Or do they read, man saved two people who murdered his family? See, one of our problems in wrestling with this doctrine is that we grossly underestimate the nature of our brokenness, the degree of hatred in our heart, and the calamity we've brought upon the creation. And when we start to begin to be honest about that, then we begin to realize there's a lot more grace going on than we have perceived formally. Because God did not need to move in and save any. But he does a great expense to himself. That's the first thing we need to say. The second thing we need to say is that very often, and in a sad way, even in our tradition, the idea of God choosing and appointing has become incredibly reductionistic. In other words, it's been reduced to the notion that God has chosen some to save. And that's it. And I'm chosen and I'm good to go. And whatever comes after that, well, we can let it work out in the wash. Really, the big thing that I'm chosen to be saved is done. Virtually never in Scripture do you have any sense that God chooses for salvation and that is disassociated from the notion that He's choosing you unto purpose. You are not chosen to be part of some social club that gets together on Sunday and has brunch and goes about your business the rest of the week. You are chosen to be part of the group that continues Jesus Christ's campaign of victory over sin and death in this world. It's more like being chosen as part of SEAL Team 6. Right? Yes, it's an honor. Yes, it's a privilege. But you've been chosen to carry out a certain function and a certain purpose. And if you disassociate from that function and purpose, then your chosenness becomes corrupted, becomes meaningless in the way that it's been painted by Scripture. You have to be able to think through the process to identify the ways in which you participate in the victory and campaign of Christ if you want to talk about chosenness at all. These things must be kept in mind. Not only that, but when Paul begins to talk about you have been predestined, you've been elected, you've been chosen to be rescued. Being chosen to be rescued presumes that something's broken that the situation is bad and there needs to be a rescue. So when we talk about God foreordaining your rescue before the foundation of the world, know that we are by necessity also talking about his foreordaining the fall before the creation of the world. 
right? And you get that. We're wading into pretty deep theological waters, and I wouldn't do it unless I thought it was important. Right? Do you think God was caught by surprise when Adam and Eve sinned? Right? There would be no sen- it would be nonsense to talk about the foreordaining the election of those to be rescued if God had not also foreordained the situation which necessitated rescue. Right? Now again, I'm not dismissing Adam and Eve's responsibility in the least. We're talking about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, which is something that to us is not reconcilable. But it affects how you think about the world. Is this world simply cast into brokenness by the decision of one couple? Or is this world cast into brokenness because it was God's will that through suffering, he would reveal himself in Christ on the cross? That's a big difference in how you look at the world and how you understand God's work in the world. The first leaves you basically to chaos. What's going to happen is going to happen. The second leaves you to a God who mysteriously works profoundly, deeply, in the midst of the most heinous suffering. Which means that whatever we're experiencing, and some of you experience deep and significant suffering and pain, that even in the midst of that, there's purpose, and God is at work in redemption, as He, as he was in Christ and the cross. So those are all things we need to keep in mind as, we, as Paul throws out these large theological ideas in big terms. Lest we... Think of our inheritance. The worst thing you could do this morning is to think, oh, yay, I've got my inheritance in Christ. Back pocket, I'm good to go. I'm just going to go about the rest of my week. It would be a perversion of everything Paul's saying in his letter to the Ephesians. And we don't want to find ourselves being so simple and, and letting ourselves off the hook of actually uh, being faithful to the calling that is upon us. So this is the nature of our inheritance. That it is something that God has appointed for us before the foundation of the world. That he's called us to deep purpose in the midst of that. But we still don't really have a full sense of what the inheritance is. We really don't know exactly what's being talked about or what is its significance. I mean, so what that I have an inheritance? What Paul's going to say is that, Paul's notion here is that everything that Christ has received by being victorious over sin and death, you too will receive, right? Last week we saw that Paul said there's nothing in, no spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that is being withheld. Everything that God is bestowing upon Christ is bestowing upon you. And in Romans 8, Paul will say that we are co-heirs with Christ. His inheritance is our inheritance, Well, that's pretty magnificent language, but we get caught in this place. And even Paul's caught in it to a certain extent. He opens up by saying the possession, the inheritance is yours. He ends this little section by saying why we wait possession for it, of it. In other words, you have it and you don't. You have it in part, but not in full. There's some already and there's some not yet. So how do we understand what we have in living in the midst of that possession while waiting for all of it? What is the significance of the part that we have? Well, Paul goes on and he makes an interesting shift there. Uh, you notice he begins with we, or uh, yeah, we as in the corporate community at the beginning of this passage. And then he switches about halfway through to the first person, to you. Or Yeah, that's right. I should, uh, sorry. 
grammatically distracted. Uh, he switches to speak uh, to the believers in, in Ephesus. And why is he making this distinction? Well, he begins by talking about all of us, but then he's drawing a distinction between Jew and Gentile. We who were the first to believe the Messiah was first for the Jews, first for Israel, then for the Gentiles. You too have come to believe in, in part. And we said that this union of Jew and Gentile is one of the things that marks um, the end of the ages. Formerly, there's been great and deep division between Jew and Gentile. Now they're made one people in Christ. And this lies in the background. And so uh, Paul goes on to talk about this inheritance that is being received. And, um, but he's speaking from this Jewish perspective. Now, when a Jew speaks of inheritance and the words that Paul's using uh, directly tie to the former inheritance, right? Inheritance is a word that's been a long, around a long time in the Judeo-Christian story. Inheritance to a Jew wasn't necessarily the Messiah or what you had in him. Inheritance to the Jew was, well, it was the promised land. That was the inheritance for Israel. And God gave a down payment in, a sense, in, in, in the sense that he gave part of himself to be present with the people as they moved in that direction and followed him faithfully. It was the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. And so we've been down a road before, between, before in which God has promised inheritance The people have received a down payment, and then they proceeded to be utterly unfaithful. They didn't obey. They didn't believe. They didn't rely or actually put stock in this inheritance. Instead, they preferred to forge their own inheritance, one of their liking, rather than the one that God intended for them. Man, is that not our challenge? Do we not desperately want to forge inheritances of what we want? We can design our inheritance. We know what we want it to look like. Not necessarily like like what God wants it to look like. And I think there are several examples at which we can kind of think about the ways in which we misappropriate a notion of inheritance. In New York City, there's really an entire subculture of people who were born into very rich homes and grew up, and at 18, they had access to their trust. And they became, uh, become what is known as trust fund kids. Because they move into New York City, and uh, they usually move to the coolest neighborhood, which 10 years ago was Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And it was the trust fund kids and the Hasidic Jews living side by side and having a good time. But the trust fund kids, uh, they have so much money coming in on interest that they don't actually have to do anything. So they go to experience life. They go to pursue their, their arts, and most of them aren't artists at all. They just are there to kind of hang out, right? And so by not having to, uh, to work for anything, being completely reliant upon their inheritance, they've lost all meaning and purpose, except simply to move from one experience to another. The same danger is for us. When we think of our inheritance as simply established, we simply rely upon it, and we lose meaning and purpose. We forget that we're called to actually participate in the campaign of Christ. That's one way things can go wrong. Another way is simply we just don't really like God's notion of inheritance. He hasn't really filled our pockets. He, In fact, one of the things that Paul will say emphatically that we actually inherit is suffering. And we think, I can do a lot better at inheritance than what God is doing for me. Uh, Jay Miskovich was um, a, a... an interesting character who rose to national prominence uh, after 2009. 
Before 2009, he was a real estate uh, developer. He lived in Pennsylvania and uh, did really well during the housing boom. Flipped properties, sold properties, uh, made several million dollars. But in the housing crisis, he lost everything. Uh, He ended up with a number of uh, high-dollar properties that he couldn't unload, found himself deeper and deeper into debt. And so he, he wanted to create an inheritance for himself, and his hope, his desire had always been that he would um, discover sunken treasure. He was, his, his hobby, which would be an understatement, he really invested all of his time and all of his excess wealth and all of the money. He didn't really have excess wealth. He borrowed a lot of money, and he invested that in uh, tre- uh, salvaging treasure. And in 2009, he was sitting down with an old scuba buddy, who had found a uh, shard of pottery and had a map to where he had found it and asked if Jay wanted to buy the map and the the pottery, right? In essence, this is a potential treasure map. And so Jay looked at the pottery and he recognized it as being from uh, the Spanish colonial period, right? The galleons are sailing around the world with massive amounts of treasure. He says, yes, I will buy that map. So he buys it on the spot for $500 and starts diving the location. And they use equipment to try to detect metal down in the sand and go down on a number of hunches. And uh, one is just a bunch of beer cans that are sitting down there and swimming around. And they come upon a bank that's covered with green, this sparkly thing. And he, uh, Jay thinks initially it's a bunch of Rolling Rock beer bottles because he... He grew up in the town where Rolling Rock is brewed and made in Pennsylvania. So I've seen this color and shine before. But as they move over to it, he realizes that uh, the sandbar is covered with emeralds. And so they begin to harvest uh, the emeralds and think that it's from one of these uh, Spanish galleons that went down off the Keys. Uh, there are no, we know of many wrecks that still haven't been found in that area. So the emeralds get brought up. And, of course, things start to move very fast now. They, they ultimately harvest something like 80 pounds of emeralds. And uh, emeralds are valuable in and of themselves, but if they come from a shipwreck, they're incredibly valuable. And so they get estimated in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And lawyers are getting involved and PR firms, and everybody wants kind of a piece of, of what is promising to be an enormously big pie. Um, in 2011, 2012, 60 minutes did an entire piece on him, which you can still go see, and they dive down to the reef, and you can see the emeralds glittering the bank. Um, but right at the time of the 60 minutes piece, uh, the stories, questions started to arise. And one was they sent some emeralds over to Europe to be analyzed, and the laboratory actually got incensed. They said, what, what game are you pulling? These emeralds have epoxy on them that uh, wasn't invented until the 20th century. You know, we, we're not sure where these came from, but that's something's fishy here. Ha. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I wish I planned that. Uh, so from there, the story continues to unravel. Uh, Beer, you know, his story, uh, they find the contractor who he, and scuba diver we met up with to get the treasure map. He said, I don't know what he's talking about. Beer cans that were supposed to set off the place that let them know where to dive, the beer cans don't actually set off that kind of equipment. Right? Pieces just became, began falling left and right. And ultimately, at the very end of the story, which is 2012, uh, it, it comes to light that what Jay is doing is running to a, a Colombian importer-exporter, where most of the emeralds in the world come from, 
buying a, about 80 pounds of emeralds and dumping them on the ocean floor because they increase exponentially in value if they actually come from a shipwreck, right? Something like $80,000 of emeralds becomes hundreds of millions of dollars of emeralds because they now have a story around them as being part of a shipwreck. And so it was, it was a big scam. And uh, just as it was breaking, uh, Jay took his life. Now, what's the point of that story? Jay is a man who is discontent with his life and disappointed and decides that he will forge his own inheritance. And so he creates this inheritance and tries to maximize its value. And ultimately, it leads to death, quite literally. And the point to you is that any time we try to forge our own inheritance, it is the same road. It is the same story. It's not something that actually will be of value. It's not something that will actually benefit us. And every inheritance other than the inheritance that exists in Christ leads to death. This is why, to Paul, it's so profoundly important that we understand that we are actually in Christ. Now, what do you think is the center of the gospel? We talk about, we throw these words around, gospel, good news, Uh, in Christ. What is this good news? Paul says, we've received the gospel of salvation, the good news of saving. Luther would say that it was justification by faith, so that we are, our slate is clean. And that's an incredibly important part of the gospel. But it is not the center. The word, the verb justify only occurs four times outside of Galatians and Romans. The phrase in Christ, which is Paul's favorite phrase, occurs 164 times. Over 30 times in the book of letter to the Ephesians alone. What Paul is saying is that you have hope and inheritance because you are located in Christ. And friends, we've made such grave, some grave mistakes over the course of the 20th century, which is to, to use phrases like asking Jesus into your heart. I don't even know what that means, right? but Jesus can't fit in your heart. You have to be located in him. It's that kind of language that that can at least at some level make God seem very small. And what Paul is saying is that your inheritance is enormous because you are in him. And by relying on being in Christ or unified with Christ, that kind of language, it reminds us too that there is no inheritance apart from relationship. In fact, that is the biggest part of the inheritance that we can be unified to the living God and made whole in Him. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the nature of inheritance and what we're talking about when we go in the wrong direction and don't, don't appreciate and appropriate um, the inheritance as being solely in Christ. It's not something that you possess apart from Him. And when you do, it ceases to be worth anything. Well, okay, so what does it mean to live in the midst of this inheritance that's been promised? We've received a portion of, we haven't received all of it. It exists in Christ. What does this mean for actual living? How does it change how I go into this week? Look down with me. Paul writes, uh, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We've already talked about this good news of salvation, but Paul says, 
It is good news when it is believed in. When it is believed upon, it can be heard and it can be rejected. So what does it mean to actually believe this good news? We watched uh, Pan, which is the more recent creative rendition of the Peter Pan story that has come out, uh, which is pretty interesting. It did terrible on Rotten Tomatoes, but I thought it was all right. And a surprisingly good performance by Hugh Jackman as Blackbeard. Uh, there you go. So uh, it tells the story creatively of Peter Pan um, in his earliest days. It's kind of an origin story. And he and uh, James Hook, right, who would become Captain Hook, are friends, partners in the story. Things haven't fallen out yet. The bad guy is Blackbeard, the pirate. And so uh, Peter Pan, Peter, is the uh, child of prophecy, the child of a, a human and a fairy who has been prophesied to come and to save Neverworld from Blackbeard's tyranny. And when he comes, they'll know he is the one because he can fly. This is how the prophecy goes. Of course, when Peter shows up, he doesn't believe. And he can't fly, and it takes a while for him to actually buy into the story of what is about him, of what is true of him, right? To believe in the context of the story what is already true of him, which is the same challenge for us when we're talking about our inheritance is do we aspire to believe what is already true of us, that we already have all of this in Christ? Do we actually believe it? Well, do you? If you believed it, I would assert that you would probably never be anxious, never be fearful. You would trust pretty much all the time, and nothing would ruffle you. Does that describe your life? I doubt it. It doesn't describe mine. And so we're confronted with the reality that our belief is weak and limited in this inheritance, which that God has given us everything in Christ. And what I want to suggest to you is that, you know, when, when Peter believes, he can fly. And that is nothing compared to what you can do when you believe. And some of you will think I'm being silly, and from my perspective, I'm not being silly in the least. When you believe in that process, God calls us to himself. And in the exercise of that belief, Paul will go on to say that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What happens when you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? If we turn to Galatians, we could read about the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the flesh, those who aren't given the down payment of the Spirit, this promise that you've actually been rescued by receiving a portion of the Trinity, that you commune with Him. Those who are found outside of that group are characterized by enmity and strife and wickedness. And sorcery. It describes the world in which we live. But those who have received the Spirit are increasingly characterized by the fruits of the Spirit, by love and joy and peace and patience. Right? In, a, in a world of complete selfishness, you experience and exhibit love. In a world in which everyone's running around like a chicken with its head cut off, you experience patience. In a world in which everyone is given and being consumed by their appetites, you get self-control. You become whole in Christ. You become someone actually relying in this crazy and chaotic world on the comforter himself 
you become one who demonstrates the life that is to come. You know these people. Have you met these people who you like, you really believe in your inheritance? You've really got the down payment of the Spirit because you exhibit to me a life that I long for and I hope is coming. At the beginning, I asked you what you would do with uh, $750 million. And you realize that in answering that question, there are things you can think of immediately that you would do. Whatever they were. What would you do if it's really true that in Christ you have inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies? What if it is really true that the Spirit of God, the Trinity, communes with you? Then what changes? Then what's different? What I'm suggesting to you and to me, to all of us, we can more readily explain and envision making changes based on American currency than we can on the truth of the gospel. That's messed up. That's really sad. But it is that sadness that Christ has come to redeem. So I dare you today, I dare you to believe and to say, what would it look like if I actually did believe? What's one small thing that would change? And to go into this week and actually participate in revealing Christ's lordship by changing that. And then you begin to understand how Paul, when he opens the section, he begins by praise. He has to worship God, and at the end, it's to the praise of his glory. You realize, you know, we... Uh, it makes me angry that we, we throw around the notion of bringing glory to God or participating in God's glory. And we get so tired of hearing that. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Da, 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 da. It is in glorifying God that you become the most ravishing and beautiful person that you can possibly be. Your heart longs to, to worship things and to bring glory to things that impress you. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody mention Newsroom over the last three months, right, I'd be pretty wealthy. Newsroom is an it was HBO show. It's now on Amazon Prime. It's written by Aaron Sorkin, who if you're any fan of TV, you recognize Aaron Sorkin is an incredibly gifted writer. Right? Most shows are written by a team of writers. Aaron Sorkin won't write with anyone. He writes all of his stuff by himself. And the dial, he did the first two or three seasons of West Wing. He does, um, he's done Newsroom. And so people think the dialogue is amazing. This conversation, you've got to watch this show. You get, you, you're wrapped up in the characters. You get, you're going to binge, set aside a week, because you're going to blow through the whole season. And we, we talk about it. We worship it. We, bring, we invite people in to experience it. Is that the kind of language and the kind of speech you use about Christ and your inheritance? Do you, do you long to lavish praise on it? Do you find yourself worshiping it because you believe that you've received something inexplicable and that it is the greatest thing that you can share with anyone else? And if that's not the language that you're using, then again, we have to, let's, let's be real and just admit to one another, we don't really believe. Yeah, we believe a little bit, but we don't really believe. What would it look like if we did? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us and that you call us out of darkness and into light. 
We thank you that you have given us an inheritance that is greater than all inheritances. That we would be blessed with things that we cannot even comprehend the value of. We praise you this day and glorify you. We worship you because you are the loving God who reaches into the brokenness and mess and brings healing and life and restoration. You have loved us deeply. Would you help us to love you back and to love one another deeply? We praise you for our salvation. We thank you for our redemption. And we pray that as Paul challenges the Ephesians, that we too would be challenged to participate in what Christ has started. Would you give us courage both to believe and courage to admit where we do not believe? We ask this in your name. Amen.